like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your presence with us today, and we thank you because you are a good, kind, loving God who deserves our worship and our praise. Pray that as we approach this subject of healing this morning, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that you would open ourselves up to hear from you. We pray that your spirit uh, dwelling in each and every one of us would come alive and resonate with the truth of your word, with the truth and reality that by your wounds we are healed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Ian and I have different shaped ears, and for that reason, the microphone often is dropping. Uh, So if it sounds like I'm talking from my throat, maybe give me a hint, and uh, I'll I'll put it back up. That's not what you guys want to be seeing. You don't want to see my schedule. (laughs) Aw. This was set up. Got it. All right. Um, I just want to take a minute too, just to just to say that uh, I think that we are very fortunate and we are very blessed to have uh, a teacher like Pastor Ian uh, leading our congregation. Would you not agree? Would you? Yeah. So you know, it's always difficult, right? The whole encouraging up and how you know. How do you do that? And, and you know, are you, are you sucking up? Are you brown nosing? Things like that. But you know, I just it bothers me that you can't acknowledge you know someone that's that's above you without being thought of that. So I just I want to acknowledge Ian this morning, and I think uh, the teaching that he is bringing to us each and every Sunday morning is excellent, and I am so thankful for him, uh, not just as as a teacher to our congregation, but also as a leader of our church, leader of our staff, and. Um, it's, uh, he speaks out of, uh, out of a genuine heart, a genuine spirit. Uh, his faith is deep. Uh, he walks with God, and he is someone that, uh, that I enjoy spending time with and being with. And uh, so from someone who spends time with him on a, on a somewhat daily basis, uh, he's good. Get to, get to know him. And uh, we deeply appreciate you. Um, I also just want to say again how much I appreciate just the opportunity to, to speak uh, on a Sunday morning, and uh, it, it doesn't really mean much to be invited to speak once, 
because when you get invited to speak once, people don't, haven't heard you before, right? So lots of people get invited to speak places once. Uh, when you get invited to speak again, that means something a little bit different. Now, you know, maybe it just meant that Ian wanted the week off, but uh, <laughs> it is really an honor, and, and I just want to say thank you for the privilege to be trusted to, to bring uh, the Word of God to you. If you read your e-bulletin this week, you know that as we approach the topic of uh, Christ, our healer, um, I'm not approaching it just from the perspective of teacher, but I'm really approaching it from, from the perspective of fellow question asker. Um, because it's a huge topic, and for a lot of us, we have more questions than we have answers. And it's a subject that we really have to wrestle with. And I want you to just consider that idea, the idea of wrestling for, for a minute with me. Um, because I think it's a great picture for, for how we can sort of deal with this topic of healing. Um, so wrestling, play fighting. Um, at least in my experience, there are times when, you know, you're just, when you're wrestling or play fighting with someone, and, and it's just fun, right? It's just the joy of, you know, headlocks and body shots and noogies, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's fun. But if you've ever sort of been in a play fight, you also realize that sometimes you're play fighting and then uh, the other person, it seems like, it seems like they start hitting a little bit harder, and, and you're surprised, so you react, right? And so you start hitting a, a little harder. And then all of a sudden, the headlocks are getting a little bit stronger, and, and so then you start putting the headlocks on even stronger. And before you know it, uh, this fun play fight wrestling has turned into an all-out war. And if you have kids, you know, boys typically, um, or if you've been in this, you know that you can go from just fun to all-out war really, really quick. And, it, and it's not really fun anymore. So as we start, um, I think about wrestling, and I think about what that means. And, and for me, there have been times in my life when I've just enjoyed the wrestle uh, when it comes to this subject of healing. Uh, I, I've enjoyed thinking about it and sort of, you know, thinking about theories and theology and, and looking at the Bible from different perspectives and different faith perspectives and denominational perspectives. And it's, and it's just, it's kind of, it's fun. There's joy in the wrestling. But then there are other times when, uh, when the wrestling uh, begins a little, becomes a little bit more intense and, and the choke hold becomes a little bit more strong. And usually those are the times in life when, when there are circumstances around me that aren't allowing it just to sort of be theoretical and, and theological and maybe kind of fun to think about but the circumstances are real. And all I really want is for that, that pain and that suffering to come to an end. So I don't know where you're at. Uh, maybe you're, today you're at a place where, you know, it's, there's nothing really sort of happening around you that's, that's making this a real deep, pressing issue where, where there's pain and suffering. And, and so we can just sort of talk about this lightly. Maybe some of you, you're in the throes of, of dealing with, with sickness and disease, and, and, and this is really tough for you. And uh, so I would say wherever you are at, um, just engage uh, knowing that the wrestling is different at different times, uh, but we can still come to the one who is Christ, who is our healer. Um, I wanted to start just with some operating assumptions, because when we get to a topic like this, I mean, it's, it's huge. You could spend so much time uh, talking about healing and, and different perspectives on it. Um, so I just wanted to sort of lay a groundwork, and we're going to go through some of this really, really fast. Um, so operating assumptions. Operating assumption number one, the healings that we read about in the Bible are real. 
Uh, we don't, I do not think that the healings that we read about in the Bible, the healings of Jesus, are metaphorical, symbolic, just an idea about some bigger, uh, bigger reality. When I read the stories of Jesus and his healing, I believe that they're real. I believe that they actually happened as we read them. It's historical narrative. It's true. Two, Jesus gave his disciples the authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So we don't just see Jesus healing people, but we also see him giving the authority to his disciples, to his followers, to go out to drive out demons and to heal people. And so it's not just Jesus and then nothing from that point forward. He actually is passing on this authority, this ability uh, for healing and driving out demons. Um, The gift of healing is a manifestation of the Spirit. Mark 16, 17 and 18 um, says, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12 Uh, 7 to 11 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Uh, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he has given them to each one just as he determines. So healing, the gift of healing, it's a manifestation of the Spirit, that Spirit within, as we talked about last week, that it's not external going in, it's internal coming out, the Spirit within. And then the gift of healing was given to the church and still exists today. So there are theologies and different thinking out there that would say that healing was for a time, it was for a purpose, but then at a certain point it stopped, and now we no longer see healing. The gift of healing is no longer for the church Um, I do not believe that. Denominationally, we do not believe that. We believe that the gift of healing was given to the church and continues to exist today. Lots of really interesting theology around that. We can get into discussions about the foundation of the apostles and and were the miracles and the healings that the apostles performed the same as, as what we should expect to see today. Lots of really interesting theology around it. But these are four sort of basic assumptions that I that I want you to know. This is where I'm coming from. And so without this foundation, everything I'm going to say after probably may not make sense if you're not on this page. Um, and if you're not, that's, that's okay. And, and we can have discussions at another time about uh, how you may agree or disagree with these assumptions. So debunking myths and embracing mystery. Um, for some people, theology is about um, putting God in a box. It's trying to take the God of the universe the one who says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not my ways, the one through whom the biblical writers say, who has known the mind of the Lord, Uh, the one through whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. It's, It's taking that God and trying to put him into a little box. That's what theology is. For me, that's not what theology is. To me, the more I study God and the more I begin to understand God, the more I realize that there is so much that I don't know. And so as we approach the scriptures, my goal is not to make clear everything. Because I think the scriptures are clear about certain things, and those things we should be clear about. But the scriptures are also unclear about certain things, and I think it's okay to leave those things unclear. So the goal of theology is not to try and just make everything perfectly uh, black and white and explainable. There's room for gray. And so we have to somehow embrace the mystery as we begin to try and work out this theology. So I am doing my best here this morning to be clear about what's clear and to be fuzzy about what's fuzzy. So debunking myths and embracing the mystery. Number one, healing only takes place when the person who needs the healing has enough faith. Now, I know what some of you might begin to think. You might, you know, we know this. 
we know, like, we're very, you know, we're intellectually astute. We know that, you know, it's not just based on the person's faith that would lead to healing. And, and probably you're, you are right. Most of the time we would say that. But yet what my experience is is that when people are actually uh, desiring personal healing for themselves, they begin to ask themselves the question, if they're not receiving the healing that they're asking for, they begin to ask themselves the question, well, maybe I don't have enough faith. So while intellectually we might say over here, yeah, you know what, I, I know that it's not just about my faith. When we're in the throes of it and we're looking for personal healing or we're looking for healing for someone else, we, we begin to put this back on ourselves and we say, oh, but maybe I don't have enough faith. We heap this guilt. So br- myth one, healing only takes place when the person who needs healing enough, has enough faith. Um, sometimes people are healed. So here's just really fast. Sometimes people are healed because of their faith. Uh, Mark 5, Jesus heals uh, the sick woman. Uh, this is the woman who reaches out. He's walking through the crowd. He, she reaches out. She touches her robe. And she just says, if only I can touch his robe, I'll be healed. I have no idea where she got that. Why did she think, if only I touch his robe? That didn't seem to be a consistent teaching in the scriptures up to that point in time. Why? But Jesus realizes something's happened. Power has gone out for me, he says. And he starts asking. And it says... She eventually fesses up, yeah, it was me. And he says, it's by your faith. So certainly there's a, a, a perspective here where absolutely, sometimes people are healed because of their faith. Matthew 9, Jesus heals two blind men. He asks them the question, they're crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And he says to them, do you believe? Do you believe that I can make you well? They say, yeah, we do. So they're healed. And he says, this is credited to your faith. This is because of the faith you have. So there's no question we can't sort of just wipe off the board and say that that. Faith and healing have no relationship together because certainly there are times in Scripture when Jesus says it's because of your faith that you have been healed. Other times, though, there are people that are healed because of someone else's faith. Uh, Matthew 8, the faith of the centurion, if you remember that he comes to Jesus and he says, my servant is sick and, and I just want to know, will you heal? And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And the, and the centurion says, you don't have to come because I know that you're a man of authority and all you have to do is speak. And Jesus says, I haven't seen such faith in anybody, so yeah, I'll heal your servant. But it wasn't the faith of the servant that made the servant better or brought healing. It was the faith of the centurion. So it comes through someone else. Matthew 15, the faith of the Canaanite woman. Uh, this is the woman who comes to Jesus and they have this very strange discussion about crumbs falling off tables to do- and dogs and all this kind of stuff. And, but her... Her question is, she's trying to uh, get her daughter's healing. She's asking for her daughter's healing. And after this discussion, after the faith that she shows, Jesus says, go, your daughter's been healed. So again, it's not the daughter who's sick. It's not her faith that's bringing the healing, but it's actually the faith of the Canaanite woman. So sometimes people are healed because of someone else's faith. And then sometimes in the Bible, there's no mention of faith at all. Um, John 5, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. You've got this man who's been lying by this pool where supposedly uh, people get healed when this angel of the Lord sort of does this cannonball into this giant pool, and the first person in gets, to, uh, gets a healing. Or at least this was the thinking behind it. Jesus comes along, and he says, hey, what are you doing here? The man explains, I'm trying to get into the pool. And Jesus like, do you want to get well? And he's like, but I can't get into the pool. So Jesus, the one who can heal him, is standing right there in front of him. He doesn't... He, Jesus is almost a distraction because he's so focused on the pool and Jesus is like, get up and walk. And the guy gets him and walks. So in this story, we see no evidence of, of faith being demonstrated by this man or by someone on his behalf. Simply Jesus saying, get up, walk, you're healed. Acts 3, Peter heals a crippled beggar. We're going to read that story at the end. Again, a man, 
not paying any attention to the reality of who's in front of him or, or, or the possibility of healing. All he wants is a handout. All he wants is money. And, and there's no evidence or no discussion of faith here. And, and Peter just says to him, get up. And he's healed. So again, whenever we're talking about healing and faith, we can't take away the relationship. There is a relationship between healing and faith, but as soon as we start trying to put it into these boxes saying, well, it depends on the faith of the person who wants the healing, or it depends on the faith of the person who's praying for the healing, or it's totally dependent on faith in general, I think we're putting God into a box that he may not have put himself into. It's a huge topic, and it seems that God heals in all sorts of different ways. Box two, sickness is a direct punishment for having sin in your life. Again, I know that you're thinking, you know what, we're... Sp- Mike, we're smart people. We know this. We know that we're not getting sick because of sin in our life. We know that we're not being punished. But yet again, when someone is in the throes of illness and sickness, time and time again, I will hear people say, I wonder if I've done something wrong. I wonder if there's sin in my life that's unresolved, and this is why God's punishing me, or this is why I'm sick. So again, intellectually over here, it's like, yeah, you know, we know this. But then when it actually comes down to it, when we're living it out, sometimes we, these questions are very real to us. So again, just to sweep through really fast, some sickness is caused by our own fail- failure to live a healthy lifestyle. I don't want to hang out on this point for very long. It's a sensitive one. But there's some principles in Scripture that talk about honoring God with your body. We're temple of the Holy Spirit, our, but we are body, soul, and spirit. We're supposed to honor God with our bodies. In 1 Timothy 4, it says physical training has some value. It goes on to say it's not nearly as valuable as the things of God, the things of the Spirit, but it does have some physical value. So there are times when people might be saying, you know, I I wish God would heal me of this, I wish God would heal me of that. And and the reality is there's lifestyle choices that are really causing them to be sick. And so sometimes we just need to step back and say, is this actually a direct, uh, is this a direct result of sin, or is this, what is this, maybe it's just me. Maybe there's something in my lifestyle that I need to correct. Some sickness is sent by Satan. Uh, We see Luke 13, we see a woman that was crippled uh, by a spirit. It said she had been crippled for 18 years, and that she was crippled by a spirit. And they, Jesus recognizes that spirit later on as Satan. Matthew 8, Uh, Jesus drives out the spirits and heals the sick. It's just, it doesn't say anything specific about a healing. It's just simply sort of all together as one. He's driving out, uh, he's driving out demons and he's healing the sick. Are they one and the same? Matthew 9, a demon-possessed man cannot talk until Jesus drives out the demon. So here's a man who doesn't have the ability of speech. Demon comes out, he's healed. So there are times when we see in scripture that some sickness is sent by Satan. Some sickness is a direct result of the sin in our lives. Um, These are just a couple examples, and and you can, again, in your own sort of mind and thinking, figure out what you think of these. Mark 2, Jesus heals the paralytic by saying, your sins are forgiven. Was he meaning that in sort of a a, a bigger picture? Was he trying to uh, make a, a bigger statement about the condition of our sinful nature and that ultimately it's not just physical healing that we need, but we ultimately need fullness of healing, which is spiritual and emotional, all of that? Or, or was this man's sin a direct result? Was he paralyzed because of the sin? John 5, again, Jesus tells the man at the end, stop sinning or something may worse may happen to you. So again, it doesn't necessarily say his sickness was direct sin, but there is a connection made with, within the discussion that Jesus has with them 
that sin may be part of the problem. I think most of the time, and when we read the scriptures, most of the time, it doesn't say that Satan did it, or that God did it, or that it was a result of their sins. It simply says they're sick. This person was sick, they came to Jesus. This person was sick, they came to the disciples. Uh, So a lot of times in scripture, uh, we don't see the specific. We don't see the specific reason why. And I think that's probably true in most of our lives as well. A lot of times, we don't see a specific reason. And we may be asking the questions, and the questions are good, what is this cause? Is this my own? Am I just making bad lifestyle choices? Am I making bad health choices? Uh, is there something spiritual going on? Do I need, do I need to really look at, at the, my spiritual life? Uh, have I let things into my life that, are, that have given the enemy a foothold? Uh, is there direct sin in my life that's causing this? Those are all good questions. Sometimes none of that is true, though, and it's simply the result of living in a fallen world. Jesus heals a man born blind. John 9, this is the place where the disciples, in all their love and compassion and mercy and grace, uh, come up to this man who's blind, not deaf, blind, and say, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it uh, his parents that caused him to be like this? Really, really compassionate, right? And, uh, and Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So again, Jesus is acknowledging in the scriptures that not every sickness or disease is a result of sin or Satan. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes it's the result of living in a fallen world. Interesting, we may come back to that, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. All right, box number three. Again, trying to blow up some boxes here. Healing is mine to claim since Jesus died for all our sin and sickness. So this is name and claim and theology. This is, if, if I just... It's mine. You know, we read it. We read it in Isaiah 53. By his wounds, we are healed. Uh, It's mine to claim. If I just say it and I believe it, it's mine. It sounds really good. But we also look in Scripture and we see a lot of godly people in Scripture who did not receive physical healing. Um, John uh, 5, again, going back to the Pool of Bethesda. Um, It's interesting, that was... The Pool of Bethesda was a place where, where many gathered uh, that were sick, hoping to get into the Pool of Bethesda. There's no story of Jesus healing everyone around the pool. He healed one. Why? Why didn't he heal everyone? I don't know. Second Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh. Uh, he talks about this uh, of tormenting him, and he describes it as a weakness. But he's not delivered from it. And he says, the Lord speaks to him, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So here's Paul, super apostle, man of God, doesn't get healed. First Timothy 5, uh, Timothy's instructed to drink a little wine for his uh, frequent illnesses. So there's, again, this acknowledgement that Timothy, here, another man of God, uh, leading churches, starting churches, uh, been raised up uh, to do so. And here he is. Uh, he's being told, you know what, drink a little wine, which is really kind of medicinal. The idea, you know what? Do, do things that make natural sense. Take care of yourself naturally. So if healing is just ours to claim, then the question, of course, we have to ask is, why do we have these significant biblical characters, pillars of the faith, who aren't being healed? Um, it also fails to recognize the already and the not yet teaching in Scripture. I don't know if you've heard of the already and the not yet. 
But there's this idea that the kingdom has come, but it's not come in all its fullness. The kingdom is near, but it's not here in the fullness that it will be one day. And so when we look at the the teachings that we've been talking about over the last few weeks regarding Christ our Savior, we've received complete forgiveness. We believe that that we are absolutely 100% forgiven, but yet we still experience sin. Regarding Christ our Sanctifier, we believe that we have been made perfect. The scripture says we have been made perfect, but we are still being made holy. We're being sanctified. So there's a sense of the already, but then not yet. Regarding Christ our healer, we have been completely healed, but yet we still experience the frailties of life. Now, I don't know about you, I find the higher up, the easier it is for me to sort of accept and get. So the whole, I'm forgiven, and I'm completely forgiven, and I have acceptance, you know, into God's kingdom, and to be reconciled to God, I, I get that pretty well, but I also know that I still struggle with sin. That one, I, I, I get half decently. We're going to Christ our sanctifier. I struggle a little bit more with that, but, you know, I, I get the idea that Christ is in me, and so it's not about, you know, me trying to whip stuff up. It's Christ in me coming up, coming out. It's the spirit within me. So I, there's this sense in which he is already all the fullness of Christ uh, is, is in me, and yet I still need to be continually filled So that I get. Maybe not as good as I get the whole forgiveness, but still experiencing sin part, but I get it. But then we move on to healer. It gets even harder, right? Okay, so I've fully been healed, but I'm still experiencing the frailties of life. And so I find as we sort of go down the list, it becomes harder and harder for us to sort of wrap our mind around what this actually means. But there is a reality in Scripture that the kingdom is near, and we are experiencing parts of the kingdom now, but we don't experience in all its fullness And so it's also sort of, we could describe it as ontology and function, being and doing. So we are forgiven, we are perfect, we are healed. But yet, in our doing, we still experience sin, and we still are in the process of being made holy, and we still experience the frailties of life. It promotes guilt, depression, depression, self-blame, and a false image of God. Um... The question, of course, we have to ask, if, if we actually come to the conclusion that just name it and claim it because God can, can, is going to heal everyone. Uh, if healing is mine to claim it, haven't received it, what does that say about me? I don't know if you remember several years back, maybe five, six, something like that, the book The Secret came out. Do you guys remember? Does anyone know The Secret? Put your hand up if you know The Secret. Some? Okay. So The Secret was this uh, quite a huge phenomenon, not in this room apparently, but it was this huge phenomenon, and... And the whole idea was, it's, it's based on the law of attraction, and the idea is that whatever, you, whatever energy you send out to the universe, that will come back to you. And so the, there was a video on The Secret, and there was a, the book called The Secret, and The Secret became a huge phenomenon for a while. And it was this idea, just, whatever you send out to the, to the universe, whatever energy you're sending out, it's going to come back to you. So you, on the video, you would see someone like visualizing driving like their Ferrari, right? and they're like cruising down the road, but they're just visualizing it because this is the energy they want to send out to the universe, because if you send that energy out to the universe, then the universe, based on the law of attraction, will send that back to you, and soon you'll be driving your own Ferrari. This is the idea. Sounds kind of wacky, but what I've heard, and what's also a little bit concerning to me, is 
is I hear a lot of Christians these days who are talking about karma. And I find that to be troubling because karma really has no place within the Christian faith. Karma is, is a belief system that even those who believe in karma don't want to believe in. We have the, sort of this westernized, sort of uh, romanticized version of karma that, yeah, you know, what goes around comes around. And it's great when you, we see some, something happen to someone that did something to us, right? It's like, ah, karma, get what you deserve. But yet, we don't necessarily like karma when something's bad happening to us. And this is true karma because, again, we have this romanticized version of karma, but true karma says whatever happens to you happens because you deserve it. That's true karma. And so when the secret was out and people were like, oh, this is so cool, my big challenge to them was karma, this whole idea of the law of attraction, is terrible because it, it, what it really does is it leads to the double victimization of people. And so you have, in an extreme case, you have a young woman who is being abused by her father. And so not only dealing with the whole idea that she's being abused by her father, now she also has to believe that somehow she brought that on herself. That's karma. That's, that's the secret. That's the law of attraction. And so when I hear Christians talk about karma, oh, karma this, karma that, whoa, <laughs> Karma has no place within the Christian faith because the whole message of God is that you will not get what you deserve if you put your faith in me. I'm not a God who just gives you what you deserve. As a matter of fact, I'll take upon myself what you deserve. So, again, going back to healing, if we just think it's ours to claim, but then we don't get it, why? What's, what's wrong with me, right? Right? And so, again, I think even the whole idea of name and claim, it leads to this kind of double victimization. What's wrong with me? And Matthew 7 says, you know, uh, a father loves to give good gifts. You know, if, if a son asks for a gift, the father's not going to give him, like, a rock or a snake. He wants to give good gifts. And so it leads to this whole, well, what's wrong with me then, right? So I think those are three really big myths that, uh, that we need to sort of dispel and get rid of. So... There's two big questions that I think we need to wrestle with, and, and we'll wrestle with them because they're huge for about five minutes. Because uh, that's, of course, all we need, right, to deal with two big questions. The two big questions that I think are before us, the first one is, does everything really happen for a reason? I'm going to ask you to be really, really bold right now. If you believe that everything happens for a reason, raise your hand. Great. All right. Thank you. So that leaves me with the impression that most of you would say you don't believe everything happens for a reason. So if you don't believe that everything happens for a reason, raise your hand. And it seems like there's a whole bunch of other people who just don't believe anything. So that's okay. Let me ask you another question. Is God really in control? Yes. Oh, okay, so that was more affirmative. Right on. Okay, so if you, again, let's be bold here. If you believe that God really is in control, raise your hand. 
Okay. I won't ask the other because it's going to be like one person. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. We don't have time. I don't have time. I'd love, maybe we'll have a chance to ask questions or another time or something. I'd love to, to hear from you what you mean when you say God is in control. Because I think when we talk about healing, we run into the whole discussion of suffering, right? And so if God is so loving and kind and generous, if he's so full of grace and mercy and justice, uh, why doesn't he heal people more often? Why does he allow such terrible things to happen? Especially, especially when they happen to good people, right? Because I think when we say God is in control, sometimes we'll even qualify it, because even when we say it, I think we're a little bit awkward about it. So we'll qualify it, and we'll say, I know it doesn't look like it, but God is in control. It's all part of his plan. I think what people hear when we say that is people hear that God is making everything happen. Now, let me ask you that. When you say God is in control, do you mean that God is making everything happen? If you believe that, be bold and put up your hand. Okay. So I would say there's a a huge uh, valley division between what we mean in the church when we say God is in control and what people outside the church are hearing when we say God is in control. Because I think people that don't have a faith background, don't have, haven't sat in church under the teachings of, of good teachers and pastors, they, they think it means God's making everything happen. You, well, God's in control. Well, then he's making everything happen. Or, or at the very, very, very least, he's allowing these things to happen. He doesn't care. I want to give you just a short, a short, short perspective on trying to make sense of this. Genesis 1 to 3, creation and fall. Uh, I'm telling you nothing that you don't already know. We live in a fallen world. God created uh, us to be in perfect relationship with him, naked and unashamed, no insecurity, no pretense, no game playing, nothing, just perfect, uninhibited pleasure and delight in each other. That's the way he started And that's the story we need to remember. That's the story where it really begins. But then the enemy comes in and he deceives. And sin enters the world. And and it says things basically just fall apart. And And we read in Romans and in Corinthians how the scripture says not just not just we, not just people, but the whole earth is like groaning. It's, it's in pain, it's agonizing, it's longing for the time when things will be made right again. The whole earth, not just people, everything longs for this day. And so we have this complete and total brokenness. And this is the world that we find ourselves living in. Let me really challenge some thinking this morning. In John 14, 28 to 31... This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. 
If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The Prince of this world... Uh, most honest commentators recognize who's the prince of this world. They recognize the prince of this world as Satan. And prince, uh, in many translations, is ruler. They say, wait a second, wait a second. Isn't God ruler? Isn't God the one who's in control of the world? Well, now we have this statement by Jesus saying, the ruler of this world is coming. And he goes on to say that he has no hold on me. So he's saying, Satan has no power on me. But it may not look like that to you. And this is why I'm telling you. See, he says, he has no power on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. Because what had the Father commanded? That he would be crucified, that he would be nailed to a cross and die. And so he's saying to his disciples, the ruler of this world has no hold on me, but things will not look like that. To your eyes, it will look like the ruler of this world is winning. Of course, we know that the story of the crucifixion doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection. But it's still a really interesting passage to think about. Okay, what does that mean then? The ruler of this world, the prince of this world, Satan. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark, in this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's he saying? He's saying demonic forces are at work. Demonic forces are at work here in our world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. Hmm. Revelation 12, 12 says, uh, but woe, <laughs> Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And so when we say things like God is in control, and I agree with you, I agree with you 100%. Please don't think that I'm preaching to you this morning and saying God isn't in control. God is absolutely in control, and I believe that. And we need to hold on to that doctrine ever so tightly. But when people outside the church hear that, they are hearing what we mean is that God is making all of this happen. And when I look around and I look at all of the horrors and the suffering in this world, I do not lay this trip on God. This is not all God's fault. Satan, the ruler of this world, woe to us, he's come down. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and darkness. Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself. We'll just flip there quickly. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis. And he took upon himself the form of a servant, doulos. Gave up, gave up all the, the rights and privileges of, of being God of the universe. The one who created from beginning to end gave up that, emptied himself of that, and became a slave. Let me ask you a question. How much power does a slave have? None. So we see even Jesus, the example of Jesus is that he's coming to us in the form of a servant or a slave. He comes to one, to us, not as one right now, as king of kings and lord of lords, but as a servant, as a slave. He comes to us as one in weakness. He set aside his power and he came in weakness. And I think the reason this happened and, and this is a drastic simplification. But it's very difficult to express power and love at the same time. How many of you guys know uh, of a relationship where there's a, a, a female, and she's head over heels over this guy? She just loves him. She'll do absolutely anything for him. But the guy, not so much. You can tell that he doesn't really care about her that much. Who's in control? of that relationship? Who? Him. He is, right? What about uh, relationships? We see, we see marriages where, where, where wives are being abused physically, emotionally, but they love their husbands, and you hear, but I love him, I love him. And you think, why? He doesn't care for you at all, but who's got the control? He does, right? See, because in our human experience, it's so difficult to express power and love together at the same time. And love makes you vulnerable. Love opens yourself up to getting hurt. So we see this kingdom, and this kingdom has come not in all its fullness. It doesn't say the kingdom is here and now, but it says the kingdom of God is beginning to break into the here and now. Jesus says the kingdom is near. And, and what I want you to consider this morning is that when we say God is in control, we have a very big overarching, yes, the whole meta-narrative from beginning of the garden to the very end of the story where he will, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That is a reality. And it's true. And so he is in control. But there's also a reality that he, Jesus, came in human form. He gave up power, became weak, he took on weakness that he might show love, that he might express love to us and we might love him in return, not under duress, not because we have to, not because we're under his power, but simply because we love him. It's an expression of love. And if what God wanted was just a bunch of uh, robots to sort of uh, to, to follow him mindlessly, then he didn't have to really do any of... Uh, any of the work on the cross or coming and taking on human form, he could have just come in power and said, you're going to do this, and we would do it. We'd have to. He's God. But instead, he chose to take on human form. He decided to empty himself and take on the form of a slave, take on weakness, 
so that we could have this love relationship with God, that we could enter a relationship of love with God. So I think we need to be very careful when we, when we talk about God is in control. Within, this, within these walls, it makes perfect sense. But when we step out, what does it mean? Because people hear us saying God's in control, and they're thinking God's making absolutely everything happen. Every earthquake that happens, every disease that you get, every kid that gets hit, hit by a car, every single thing is, is, is God, 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 God. He's got his finger on everything. And what I'm saying is the scripture doesn't say that, that that's the way God operates. It's not God, 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 finger on this, finger on this. Everything that's happening is because he makes it happen. Could it, could it be? Will it be? Is there a day coming when it will be like that? Absolutely. But that's the day when we won't see all of these devastating things happen. We won't see disease and sickness and earthquake and, and terrible things and abuse. That will be the day when we th- see everything made right. But at this point in time, he came in weakness. He came in human form so that we might know him and we might love him. Not under duress, not because he's forcing us to, but because we choose to. The kingdom of God has not come in all its fullness. It doesn't say the kingdom is here and now, but rather the kingdom of God is beginning to break into the here and now. The kingdom is near. So in your e-bulletin, I ask you the question, how has God healed you? It might sound like a uh, strange question, and, and we've been talking a lot about physical healing this morning. At least the, the, the boxes that we wanted to blow up uh, was really relating to physical healing. But I think there's beauty in the reality that, that God doesn't look at us um, one-dimensionally. One uh, he doesn't look at us two-dimensionally. We're in the 3D age, aren't we? 3D? Everything's 3D. Uh, we are three-dimensional. We're body, soul, and spirit. And even this series, we've been talking about Christ as Savior, Christ as Sanctifier, Christ as Healer, Christ as Coming King. But I don't think God sort of chops us up into slices and sort of deals with us sort of individually. He looks at us as a whole. And, and, and any teaching that would say, well, God's only really interested in your spirit, and so do whatever the heck you want with your body and all that kind of stuff, it's nonsense. God looks at you as a whole. He's created you uniquely you. Look at your hand. Just take a look at your hand for a second. Hold, hold your hand up and look at it. Think of, think of the, the imagination. Think of the creativity that that hand is unique to you. Out of the six billion plus people, that hand is unique to you. No one else in the world is like you. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. God has done an incredible work to make you and he loves you individually. So the question is, how has God healed you? I'm just going to go through this story, and then we'll, uh, we'll come into land. This is uh, just such a neat story. So baptism of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost has come. They've been, the new covenant has come in all its fullness. The Spirit is within now. And so it says, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. 
some really interesting things even in that first in that first part of the story here's a man been crippled from birth he's got a congenital birth defect um, he's been lame since birth never been able to walk and it says he's put at at this gate called beautiful which is an entrance to the temple um, if you're a, if, if you were a beggar this was the best place to be this was the place because uh, there were three pillars of first century Jewish faith they were Torah study temple worship and almsgiving so following his word, getting into the word, temple worship, going, making sacrifices, your offerings to God, and then almsgiving, giving to the poor. And so at, uh, at, um, at 9 and at 3, these were times of sacrifice, times of prayer where people would be going to the temple. And you're going to the temple, and, and here are these beggars, and they're asking for money. It's brilliant. It's a, it's, a, it's a great plan because people already have their mind on, you know, Torah study, temple worship, Oh, almsgiving. Well, here are some poor people, so I can actually practice giving, you know, giving to the poor right here and now. It's a brilliant strategy. It's like they, if we, they were to put homeless people or, or someone with an infirmity or that was crippled, can't walk outside our door here, and you had to walk by them, and they were saying, can I have some money? Can I have some money? Well, you're already coming to church. Your mind's already sort of thinking, you know, towards God and things of God. It's a brilliant strategy. Put them out there. So he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but uh, when someone's been on the street for a while, they don't really make eye contact with people. And, and it's sort of just this sort of like, you know, money, money, is there any money? You got money, you got money. And another experience is that people don't actually look at them either. Is that it's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't really want to have to acknowledge this person, because then that might be uncomfortable, but I'll, I'll throw some money in anyways. And so we have uh, Peter who's saying, look at us. So he wants to engage this, this man on a deeper level. It's not just, you know, let's just sort of throw some stuff, you know, into your, your pot there, whatever. Look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from him. And then Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give you, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of, of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. Uh, in, in, in the Greek, it's much stronger than that. It's actually like Peter grabbed him and like yanked him up. It was like, you are going to get up here. And, and the man instantly walks. It says, instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then this is so cool. It says, then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. It says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There's something really cool that happens to him. He gets, he, he's physically healed, right? Congenital birth defect. He hasn't been able to walk his entire life. And he receives this physical healing. Ankles, legs become strong, up, walking. God gives him his dancing back. He is just thrilled. And he's hanging on. We read uh, later on, you know, he's just hanging on Peter and John. He's so excited. I'm not letting these guys go. Like, I am holding you guys tight. And he's thrilled. But then it says he goes with them into the temple. See, the reason he was sitting outside the temple, one, it was to collect money, but two, is because he wasn't even allowed in. Because if you read in the Old Testament, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 21, it talks about if you had any type of infirmity, and there's all sorts of lists, and Leviticus talks about how you just wouldn't even be allowed in. And again, that external system, the external system to going in, it was a system where it said, if there's something wrong with you, it's probably because you're cursed. It's probably because you've done something and God is, is judging you for it. 
And so not only does he have this physical illness, but he also has separation from his people. He's not allowed to be in community with people, but he also is not allowed to go in and, and make sacrifices or offer anything up to God. So he's got a physical illness, he's got relational brokenness, and he can't connect with God. He's got spiritual brokenness. And so when the disciples, when Peter and John heal him, they're not just healing him of a physical disease. Yes, he gets up, he's thrilled, and that's what we see, and that's what he's excited about. But then he goes with them into the temple. And we see that not only is he physically healed, but we also see that he has relational healing as well, as he is allowed back into the temple. And then we see that he also has spiritual healing because he now can commune with God. And the really interesting thing is that probably his whole life he's been desiring to get into the temple so that he can, that he can worship and he can uh, make sacrifices and, and be in right relationship with God. But he actually has a more powerful experience with God before he even gets into the temple. Because the whole t- teaching of the new covenant is that God isn't in the building anymore. God is actually inside of us, and and he's not confined to a a temple or a tabernacle or a tent or anything like that, that God will meet you where you are. And so his whole life, he's probably been just desiring to get in and to worship and to make sacrifices and to be with God. And finally he has that. But yet the reality is he met with God in a more powerful way right outside through his encounter with Peter and John. Come into land with this. You know, when we talk about healing, our minds typically go right to physical, right? Healing, oh God, yeah, physical. But the reality is, is that healing's not just limited to our physical. He wants to heal us in so many ways. Most of the time when prayer requests come in and it goes through the prayer chain, I would say probably 90%, I'm just throwing a number out, but just sort of quick observation, probably 90% or more are for physical healing. We're asking for physical healing. But there are a few people who have had the courage to send in prayer requests that are are not based on asking for physical healing, but you're actually asking for something relational or spiritual or emotional. And, And I would just applaud you for that because that takes a lot of courage. But the reality is that when we talk about Christ, our healer, is, yeah, we're not going to minimize the reality that he is still capable of healing physically. And there are times when the kingdom, we see the kingdom break in in a way that we haven't seen before, and we see physical healing, and it's a beautiful thing. And we should pray for that. The, The Bible says we should pray for that. But Christ, our healer, is so much bigger, and he loves us not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually and relational, body, soul, and spirit. And when I look around today, my, just my observations, when I look at young people, because I work with teenagers, you know, I can't, I can't even begin to explain to you the, the pain that I'm seeing. I think teenagers today are experiencing a level of pain and, and, and an emotional brokenness that most of us, including myself, have, have not even experienced I can't tell you the number of, of young girls that I see and I come in contact with whose lives are, are, like, broken, and they are broken on the inside because dad, either dad's not around or, or dad's kind of around or dad's around, but, man, 
not a very nice dad. And I see emotional brokenness uh, in ways that are just absolutely devastating. And then you see them reaching out, and you see them you know, looking for this relationship or looking for that relationship, and they're reaching out, and of course it becomes even more destructive and they get more and more hurt. I see men who, are, who haven't had positive male role models in their lives, and, and they're just trying to figure out you know, their way through life. Uh, or worse, they have people that have put them down and said they're no good, that they're not really a man, and, and they're just made to feel stupid. And There's something really wrong, and again, I'm speaking as a youth pastor here right now, but there's something really wrong and sad when when an entire generation uh, will be marked based on the reality of cutting. When the amount of pain that, that people are feeling inside takes them to the place where they actually want to cut themselves physically. So when I talk about Christ our healer, I'm not just talking about physical healing, legs getting strong, people standing and walking. I'm talking about emotional healing. There's such a need. I could go on, I see... Marriages that are struggling, breaking up. Family friendships that are strained. Uh, wounds, wounds from past uh, that people just aren't dealing with. You see thought patterns, intellectually. I see thought patterns in people who, who their thought patterns have just become destructive and it leads them to do things that are no good. And, I, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit amazed at, at the amount of brokenness I see. And this is, I know, this, doesn't this feel good to end the service? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm amazed at the level of brokenness I see. And what, what hurts me even more is I see people who call themselves Christian, but for fear of being hurt, refuse to, to open themselves up to even God. Because they're, they're, they're afraid that even, the, even God will end up hurting them in the end. And it, and it breaks my heart. Healing is not limited to just the physical. Christ, our healer, uh, wants to heal us in so many ways. And so my question to you is, how has he healed you? Revelation 22, coming into land. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God, of the Lamb, will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Matthew and I were play wrestling uh, this week. We were play fighting. And uh, I guess at, at one point in time, I gave him a pretty good Charlie horse in the leg. And... Uh, He's like, oh, dad, dad, that hurt, that hurt. And he was limping around the house for like five minutes. But he was, he was faking. He, was, he wasn't actually hurt. He was fine. But I take you back to that because when Matthew and I wrestle, here's what I know for sure. I know that Matthew has never been afraid. 
And I know that Matthew is not worried that I'm actually going to hurt him. Because I'm his dad. And, and, and the wrestling is the fun. The wrestling, we do it to, to, to have a, a good time together. But he knows as my kid that I will not hurt him because I love him. And so even when I give him a Charlie horse on the leg, he's like, oh, that hurts, that hurts. He's not worried. He knows that we're just having, we're just having fun. I would never do anything to hurt him because I love him so much. To you, I would say, as we wrestle, as we wrestle with this issue of healing, as you wrestle with things in your life, where you would say, I know that God really needs to, to do some healing here. I pray that you would know that the one that you wrestle with loves you. And that despite the circumstances, as all of you know, God is in control. And that he is working the good for those who love him. Wrestle with the God who loves you. Wrestle with the God who doesn't want to hurt you. Wrestle with Christ, your healer, who loves you. Let me just pray. Father, I pray right now for each person in this room, including myself. I ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. That you would, again, open our minds, open our hearts, uh, to see things for, for, for what they really are. Pray that we would see you as a loving, kind, gracious, generous, good, healing God that we can go to, that we can be with, that we can wrestle with. Pray that we would look at ourselves through honest lenses, that we would see the areas that you need to bring healing in our lives. For some, that may be physical. And you say, come, ask. For others, it might be emotional. For some, it might be intellectual. For many, relational. For some, it's spiritual. For some, it's brokenness from you. God, open our eyes that we might see these things and help us to respond in a way that honors you, in a way that glorifies your son Christ, as he is the healer in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are late for lunch, so uh, I'm just going to ask Aaron to come and play. You guys, we're, we're done. That's a terrible benediction, isn't it? <laughs> um, but I would encourage you, I'm just going to ask that Aaron play quietly for, for the next five, ten minutes. If you want to pray, if you want to, to pray with an elder, if you want to pray with Ian, if you want to pray with someone, anyone, if you want to pray with me, um, take the time. Take the time to allow Christ the healer to speak to you to speak healing into your life and to begin to work in the areas that you need to, to have that healing in. Otherwise, you're free to go. And uh, I pray uh, God's blessing on you this week, uh, that he would uh, fill you with his presence, that you would know his presence in your life 
as he comes up out of the earth.